Heavenly Father, Divine Mother, Friend, Beloved God, Great Masters, Jesus Christ, Babaji Krishna, Lahiri Mahashaya, Swami Sri Yukteswar, Beloved Guru, Paramahansa Yogananda Ji, Saints of all religions, Friend and Guide Swami Kriyananda, we humbly bow to you all. Beloved Lord, awaken in us the knowledge of thy presence and an ever-increasing desire to dissolve our egos into thy great light. We are thine. Be thou ours. Om. Peace. Amen. How feels everyone? Awake and ready. How is everyone? Awake and ready. Good. <laughs> or as they say in Italy, where we're going soon, bene, bene. <laughs> so we just want to welcome all of you to uh, Spiritual Renewal Week 2014. As most of you know, this is a, this is a tradition that Swami started in 1969, the very first year of the community, and we've continued it on ever since. And it's um, we're so happy to have all of you join us, both here uh, in person from all of our communities uh, around the world, really. There are representatives from both Italy and India here. And also we want to welcome those who are joining us online uh, from around the world, and we're so happy that you can be with us. And for those of you who won't watch us either in person or live, but in some future time and space, <laughs> welcome to all beings. God bless you all, and we want to have the singers come up. As the choir gets situated, um, we just wanted to let you know we're going to start this SRW with um, two of our most loved songs by Swami Kriyananda. There's Joy in the Heavens and Many Hands Make a Miracle. And to also let you know at the very end, we will have a sing-along where you will all get to sing uh, Life is a Dream. Thank you. <laughs> Show. 
sit by a stream and just be. The lilt of the water will gather your worries and carry them down to the sea. The lilt of the water will gather your worries and carry them down to the sea. Men hunger for freedom but don't see their dungeon is only the thought that they're bound. Desires are their shackles, the hope that tomorrow the doorway to joy will be found. Desires are their shackles, the hope that tomorrow the doorway to joy will be found. There's joy all around us, why wait till tomorrow? We've only this moment to No riches can give. A heaven within us is ours for the finding. A freedom no riches can give. There's joy in the heavens, a smile on the mountains, and melody sings everywhere. The clouds are all laughing to welcome the morning. Your soul is as free as the Hola 
I just want to start by saying how wonderful it is to see so many dear, dear friends. Many, I look out and I see people that I've known for 30, 40 years, and it's beautiful to have these long spiritual friendships. It's one of God's great gifts. And it's also beautiful that all of you have come from all these distant places. And those of you who are new and were just forming these friendships, they too will last a long time, even unto ever, into eternity. This week is dedicated to the theme of happiness, finding happiness. And I would like to suggest something that... We all have a goal, and that is that by the end of this week, we, each one of us, significantly and permanently raise our level of happiness. You know, uh, Swami, in his book, Education for Life, introduced the theme of our consciousness having a particular kind of a specific gravity. So people are born with heavy specific gravity, medium-specific gravity, light-specific gravity. Now, basically, all devotees are born with light-specific gravity because you wouldn't be a devotee unless you had that upward-moving desire, that upward-flowing energy deep within you. Nonetheless, even among devotees, even among us, individually, There are variations that happiness level or that specific gravity level kind of bounces up and down a little bit. So by the end of this week, let's move it up and let's move it up in such a way because we will have techniques and understandings that will allow us to move that up and keep it up and keep it up permanently. So if this week works... You will go away happier, (laughs) and you will stay happier. So that's a a pretty good goal. I would like to talk a little bit in two parts. One is what makes us unhappy, and the other is what makes us happy. And to begin with that, first we need to understand kind of the nature of who we are, the nature of what this universe is. We talked about this fairly extensively at Inner Renewal Week, and so I won't go into it at great length. (coughs) Those of you who would like more uh, in-depth, you can go and find the uh, recordings of Inner Renewal Week of 2013, or 14, on the web. But I want to reintroduce the theme that we introduced there because it's very, very important for what we're talking about. In a book by about Lahiri Mahashaya's life, he talked about the fact that there are God in his still state, which he called still prana. So think of prana as not just energy, but intelligence with potential to do things. So in still prana state, God is pure consciousness, and that consciousness is made up of sat-chit-ananda. That's existence, consciousness, and bliss. But there's no 
outward manifestation. There's nothing outside. There's only unity. There's only that pure consciousness. Then, from time to time, in the day of Brahma, there's a day of Brahma, a night of Brahma. Night of Brahma is when there's no creation. He just rests in that pure state of Satchitananda. In the day of Brahma, where there's an outward creation, Lahiri said he takes a small portion of his consciousness. He said 1%. And he takes that 1% of the consciousness and he puts it into motion or vibration. And that is the original duality between still prana and dynamic prana. And that's what creates this whole universe. So that prana in vibration is what creates the outward flow. It's what creates the manifested universe. It's on different levels, but since we're inhabiting here the physical level, we'll talk primarily about that. But it's first on consciousness, then energy, and then physical level. And so that vibrating prana creates this outer universe, and it creates us. But it also, because it's in vibration, think of a tuning fork. The tines of that tuning fork move back and forth between, uh, let's call it a right and a left, each tine. And that vibration creates movement of air, and we hear that as sound. Well, vibration on a deep level creates sound. Or sound creates vibration. Om creates this universe. And so one way of unwinding this whole thing, getting back to our original state of pure bliss, because Ananda, the third part of that existence consciousness bliss, Master talked about it as ever new, ever expanding joy or bliss, because he didn't want us to think, that we'd get bored with it. <laughs> oh yeah, bliss. <laughs> Reminds me one time we were giving a series of classes in San Francisco at a Unity Church, and this one was on uh, how to meditate, a six-week series. And there were other classes being offered, and these two kind of nicely dressed, society-looking ladies came up and said, oh, what's this class? And Davy, who was at the uh, registration table said, oh, this is a class on how to meditate. And one of them said, oh, meditation. We already did that one. <laughs> and went on to something else, you know. So at any rate, that outgoing energy creates restlessness. And one could say increasing restlessness. Now, we will never be permanently happy until we come back into the state from which we came, the state of still prana. So everything in life, one might say, has the goal of remergence back into that still state, into that blissful state. But because the energy has a momentum, a propulsion of outwardness, then in this physical world, and the astral world too, but the physical world, as I say, is what we're inhabiting now. And so let's keep the discussion more on that level. In this physical world, that pure bliss can't maintain itself. 
And so it's kind of the pale shadow of it or the echo or reflection of it. And that reflection of it is happiness. And happiness that is produced by the consciousness of ego because for us, one of the prime, in fact, the prime manifestation of this duality or separation is that we think that we're separate from other people, from other things. So that sense of separateness is what the ego is. So the soul, Master said, is a pure reflection of God, pure reflection of God in that tranquil state. And that's our soul, but the soul inhabits countless, countless bodies. And in each of those bodies, there's a particular form, a particular body, and a particular personality. And when the ego is playing that video game of being in that particular body and identifies with that body and that personality, then that's the ego. So the ego isn't a reality. It's a state of temporary fascination or temporary delusion or losing oneself in the game that we're playing. And as long as there's ego, then there's not a possibility of permanent joy, permanent happiness, because joy lies beyond the ego. It lies in the soul quality. So another way of talking about our goal, we can talk about it as self-realization, and many times we talk about that as unity with God, but in a certain way it would be more correct to talk about it as unity with our own self, unity with our own soul, unity with that which is uniquely us from the very time that we were brought into creation, into manifestation. And any movement toward that will produce happiness. And any movement away from that will produce unhappiness. Isn't that a simple formula? Now, that's the essence. We could quit right now. And as Sri Yukteswar did, say we've studied enough. Now meditate on it, and we'll come back tomorrow. So again, I'm going to repeat that. Any movement toward the realization of ourself as the soul will produce happiness leading to bliss. The movement away from that realization will produce unhappiness leading to kind of darkness and all of the other states that are attained uh, with that. Okay, now <clears throat> one might think from that, well, gee, how can we be so stupid? <laughs> I mean, if it's really that simple, then why don't we just do it and be done with it? Well, see, it's, it is and it isn't that simple because there's an outward force to this creation that God created and there's an outward momentum to it. And so that outward momentum manifests in various ways. It manifests, first of all, in what we might call maha delusion. And maha delusion is the sense of separateness. Most of you have probably heard this kind of 
story joke that Master used to tell to illustrate this. But that separateness is necessary in order to carry on a sense of outward creation. So the story goes that when God first created the world, he created everyone perfect. That would be without an ego. And being without an ego, they simply meditated and merged back into God because they realized right away that's who they are. And he scratched his head and said, well, that didn't work. Let me try that again. And so he did it again. They sat down, meditated, merged back into God. He said, that didn't work. I better do something. I better create also a force of delusion, an actual miasma, maya, or maya means the measurer, the separator. And so with this third attempt, he created that force of maya or delusion. And then those entities thought themselves separate and were caught in that separation and couldn't so easily just sit down and meditate and merge back in. So we're caught in that outward flow. So that outward flow of separation is what creates this entire universe. But when it comes into our body, because... We could be cosmic about it, and it's interesting to have discussions of that sort. But if we're going to move our own level of happiness by the end of the week, then we have to talk more referenced to ourselves. And so when that sense of separation, sense of maya, comes into our body and our personality that we're inhabiting now, we are created this body is created in a particular kind of way and so as master has said at the beginning of the creation of the body the sperm and ovum unite and the first cell is the cell of the medulla the medulla is the seed of the ego isn't that interesting just i find these things fascinating so The first cell is the medulla, and then one could say the consciousness with which we have lived in the past. We, you know, when we want to blame our father or mother for for our problems, you're your own father, you're your own mother, and if you want to blame somebody, blame the father and mother, meaning your past lives that you've led, because that's what created you. So we come in... And that creates a body, and it creates a particular kind of personality, creates a particular kind of functioning. But along with the physical body is a more important body comes into manifestation. That's the astral body. The astral body has the six chakras. It has the, the astral currents that move up and down. It has the central channel, the shashumna, And that represents, if the direction of the energy flow is downward, it represents us going more and more into matter and manifestation. And if it's upward, it represents the freedom from that. And Lahiri actually put numbers to this. He said that when the energy is completely gathered at the kutasta, the spiritual eye, It's close enough to the still state. He said, God, 
before creation is zero vibration because there's no vibration there. When it comes into vibration, we, at this point, are from zero to nine. And he didn't say how many. I assume it's vibrations per second or nanosecond or something. Anyway, think of it as vibrations per second, zero to nine here. When it comes to the throat, it's 10. The heart is 100. The navel is 1,000. 10,000 and 100,000 at the base of the chakra. So think of something vibrating faster and faster and faster, very slow at first, vibrating faster and faster and faster. And so if the energy is descending, it's actually going more and more into quick vibration, and that propulsion pulls us out into the world. So the faster the vibration, the more outward our consciousness is, and the more we're caught in the delusion of things being outward. And as long as things seem like they're outward and the world is out there, then one of the first great delusions comes along. The first great delusion is the delusion of ego. But the second great delusion, once we're in ego is that something outside of our ego is going to make us happy, is going to fulfill us. And it's true in a little motion. If we're hungry or starving and we find food and we eat, that makes us happy for a while. And so there is a sense of something outside of ourselves fixing a condition that otherwise would be be disastrous for us, and that does contribute to our happiness. But we keep pushing and pushing, thinking that more and more and more is going to make us even happier. Master tells a charming little story of a man who lived in Alaska, and he received as a present some grapes, and Master said they were ladyfinger grapes. I'm not quite sure what must be a variety that was present then. And this man loved them so much that he moved to, from Alaska to California because that's where this present came from. And he, and he found a place in a grape-growing area, and it just so happened that next to him was a, a vineyard where, where these grapes were grown. And so this nice lady brings him a big bunch of grapes. Here's that he likes them. Big bunch of ladyfinger grapes. And he said, oh, thank you, thank you. I just love these. In fact, I moved all the way from Alaska to have these. And the lady says, well, then I'll be sure to bring you these grapes every day. <clears throat> and so he eats a big bunch of grapes. The next day she shows up with an even bigger bunch and eats those. Third day she shows up at dawn with a bigger bunch. He's barely awake. He's a little overeaten and who knows whether the grapes had fermented. Anyway, he's, he, he says, oh, thank you very much. Fourth day, she shows up again, even bigger bunch of grapes and says, oh, no, not more grapes. Oh, no. And But he finally accepts him. Fifth day comes. She shows up again. He says, I can't stand any more grapes. I don't want any more. Take your grapes. 
She says, thank goodness, now I can sell them and make some profit. (laughs) But Master used a cute little story to say that nothing outward is ever going to satisfy us. We go in an outward direction, and in that outward direction, we're... We want something, we attain something, and what is really the most interesting part is the wanting. It's the hope for attainment. Because once we get them, we find out after four or five days we can't stand it. You know, once we get wealthy, we find out that wealthy didn't didn't make us happy. Famous, fame is dust. Anything, anything outward will not make us happy. And so this propulsion of outwardness actually manifests as three great delusions. And these delusions are what keep the universe, the physical universe, as we know it, alive and going. The first is, for people, is money, but it's actually about security. And so security relates to, remember, sat is existence. And so you bring that down to its kind of pale form, reflection, and it's about keeping this body in existence. And so there's a great drive, the drive, the struggle for survival, the desire for survival. And it's the most powerful force among manifested conscious living entities to attempt to survive. The attempt to keep the uh, species alive is the sex force, and that's the second most powerful force. And so desire for, for money, as it is applied in, in, um, to human terms, sex, and then the third great delusion is wine. And I always wondered, now that's a kind of an odd one to put in there because the first two you see all the way down to the animal kingdom, that the animal kingdom wants to have uh, existence, wants to have procreation, and but it doesn't necessarily want to have wine. <laughs> but what wine represents is that Remember, the satchit is awareness, ever-increasing awareness. Well, because of the outward flow of the energy, the downward flow into restlessness, into greater, one could say, darkness, then our consciousness gradually gets to the point where it says, this isn't making me happy, this flow, this world. Everything isn't making me happy. I'm going to dull myself so that I don't feel that I'm in pain anymore. And so that's why wine, it's not really wine, it's the dulling of consciousness that is the third great delusion. And so those three great delusions, but also in, in our chakras, the lowest chakra represents stability, and survival and those aspects. The second one, sexuality, relationships. The third represents, actually, re- remember in the Gita that Arjuna is the, represents the third chakra, the navel chakra. 
the quality is intense self-control. And wine is the reverse of that. It's how we lose self-control. Swami, in I want to show you this book. This just arrived. This is not yet... Um, we only have four of these. These are the advanced copies. But this is the uh, Swami Kriyananda, A Life in God. This is a tabletop book. It's filled with hundreds and hundreds of photos and pictures of Swami and dozens and dozens of essays. He has one called The Three Great Delusions where he talks about this. By the way, there will be book tables where you can see this book more closely because it's just beautiful. And then we'll get the shipment on Swami's spiritual anniversary, uh, September 12th. And so if you'd like to get one, you can do that. But in this essay, The Three Great Delusions, Swami talks about how he would like to add two others. The delusion of the desire for power and the desire for fame. And he said that, why are these great delusions the great delusions? Because they're addictive. Because they're so strong that they draw us into them and they've got tentacles that don't let us go. Master said that evil is simply the lack of our true joy. And that anything that blocks the movement toward true joy can be considered evil. And so he said for a tiger to kill an animal as food, the tiger doesn't have yet the capacity to do anything more than that. But a human being has the capacity to not kill, to not do violence. And that's why the commandments come along, not as God shaking his finger, but as a doctor giving us prescriptions about how to be happy. Don't do violence, nonviolence. Thou shalt not kill. Ten commandments and, and so on. So the scriptures give us these prescriptions. But if we go against something that will allow us to experience more of our true self, more true joy, then that something can be considered evil. So if we have the capacity not to do violence, and we do violence, then that's an evil. If we have the capacity not to drink alcohol, and we drink alcohol, then that's an evil, and so on. I won't spin that out. But at any rate, these three great delusions are, are happiness-killing delusions. And so those we have to work on, and we work on it always You'll hear this theme repeated over and over during this week. The way to move toward true happiness, toward joy, is to bring the energy inward and upward. And so the movement of this, remember still prana, dynamic prana, once it gets in the spine, the movement of it going downward faster and faster and outward is the killer of happiness and joy or one could say, puts the veil over it. And the reversal of that brings us into true happiness and true joy. It's really simple, really simple. It's just hard to do. <clears throat> so, 
now we have these great delusions. And then there's another delusion, which is that there's time and space. It's all consciousness, but as long as we're here on this physical plane, caught in the web of these delusions, let's talk in terms of time. Now, time is a very, very long stretch in terms of that. Master used an interesting analogy. He said time doesn't really exist, but it seems to. And he used the analogy of a film. A film has all the little scenes, and you run that through a projector in sequence, and you start from the beginning of the movie, and you go to the end of the movie. And that movie could seem, let's take Gandhi, it seems to take what, 80 years, 70 years, something like that, for the life of Gandhi to play out, and you're caught in that, and it's certainly it's got time and space and all of that. But Master said, but the Master sees the real, and he can move back and forth in any one of those scenes wherever he wants to. It's called consciousness. And so the when we come into this body... We have this long, think of it that when we come into, out of the realm of being a pure soul and we come into a manifestation as a body, Master said we have 8 million years or so before we ever come into the human level. 8 million lifetimes, not years, lifetimes. And then after the human level, we can have infinite number depending on whether, because we have free will, depending on whether we want to move toward true joy or want to play in all these really interesting things out there. And so using that free will, we spend a long, long, long time playing. And the basic rule of reincarnation is as long as you want it, you get it. You just have to reincarnate in order to get it. And so whatever you want, whatever desire. Swami one time was with Master and it scared him when he heard this. He said, Master, even if I want an ice cream cone, I have to... Master said, oh yes, any desire. Now I don't think you have to reincarnate just for an ice cream cone, but if that lingering desire for what that represents is there, yes, then we have to reincarnate. So during those long, long areas of reincarnation, we begin to form particular attachments to things. And those attachments gradually form into habits, and those habits form into tendencies. And so when we're born into this life, we're born carrying the trail of all of the past habits and tendencies that we have created. Master said something very interesting. He said, uh, uh, one of the subjects we'll cover is environment. He said that everyone is born into this world with a particular kind of uh, mental uh, tendencies or dispositions. He said, but environment plays a very strong part in how that is expressed. He said, a, evil, uh, a person with uh, evil tendencies, remember, evil is that which keeps a person from finding their true joy. So 
a person who's had habits that that keep him away from that is reborn in this lifetime with those habits. And so we can call that person a bad person. So because he's bad to his own self. So that person, if he's born or is moved into a good environment, will be uplifted. And those negative tendencies will be suppressed. And the reverse happens. A light person, a good person, if he's in an evil environment, the tendencies of goodness will be a little bit suppressed and the dark ones brought out. That's why environment is so important for the soul. But these habit patterns, that's why we create communities. That's why master spiritual communities was such an important part of his teaching because he wants us to be in environments that enhance the good qualities, the seeking God qualities, and diminish the others. And so communities, above all, help to do that. So we have these habits that we come in, and I'd like to talk about some clusters or tendencies of those. We come in with particular desires for sensual uh, stimulation, let's call it, and particular desires for material goods. And those habit patterns, depending on our past, were drawn into a life where we're attracted to certain things and repelled by certain things. And it's different for every person. Remember, the first great delusions applied everyone. They're like mass delusion. But now we're playing an interactive video game. And so every time we play and we get certain things and we find that we like that and other things we don't like, then gradually as the character comes into manifestation in the next game, it comes in with those tendencies. And That's why the great scriptures come along and they say, here are some to watch out for. Patanjali says, here are some yamas, stay away from these. Violence and lying and stealing and sensuality and greed, stay away from those. They're not going to make you happy. And the Ten Commandments and the Gita and the Kuravas and the Pandavas, they give us a kind of a road map or a doctor's prescription of what's going to make us happy, what's going to move us back toward true joy, and what's going to retard us from that or even move us away from that. And so the great scriptures come along. And so gradually as we become more and more conscious and more and more desirous of joy, more and more desirous of God, what we become attracted to changes. And all of us, that's why when I started out, I talked about our specific gravity. Specific gravity is what you're attracted to. Those particular patterns of desires and, uh, well, attractions and magnetism. And that which moves us toward our own true self brings light specific gravity and the other aware. There's another kind of interesting habit pattern that I would like to talk about because this applies more 
specifically to a lot of devotees, and that's we come in with habits of attitudes. We have particular kinds of attitudes. We have an attitude, let's say, of... Um, I don't know, since we're talking about happiness this week, people who are light come in wanting to be happy. Others may come in wanting to be happy, but the attitude is always outside, that I'll get this, I'll get it through power, I'll get it through gossip, I'll get it through cutting off the heads of my enemies, I'll get it thousands and thousands of ways. Always, Master said, the only motivation is to move toward happiness, really joy, and away from pain. That's the one motivation for everyone. But how we define that is completely different. And so the gurus come along and they give us not only the yamas and the niyamas, but they give us particular kinds of attitudes that we should have that help us move that way. So the yamas tell us what to avoid, the niyamas, the attitudes we should have of cleanliness. Cleanliness not just of environment, but mind. Cleanliness, uh, contentment, austerity, self-study, devotion. Those kinds of attitudes, they say, will move us toward our own true self, our own joy. And so watch your attitudes because your attitudes are going to be more than anything else, the mother and father of you and your next life. Or if you get your attitudes clean enough, then you don't have to be a mother and father. You, you don't have to reincarnate. Then I also want to touch on something that I have noticed that I find interesting, that we carry with us from the past certain kinds of strategies of life behavior, of ways of being that have worked for us in the past. And those may or may not work for us in the present. Take, for instance, our relationship to authority. In the past, we may have had a life where we were truly oppressed, where there was a foreign power that was in charge of wherever we lived, that we were imprisoned falsely, that somehow authority really uh, imprisoned us and suppressed us. And during that lifetime, a successful strategy was to oppose that authority, to be a rebel, to refuse to obey, because that authority was downward pulling. But I have seen not only a few, but quite a number of... I hear giggles. Anybody here have any authority issues? Yeah. See, now the authority figure is not trying to suppress you. It's trying to free you. And so if you rebel against the authority of the guru, which is trying to free you, or the spiritual path, which is trying to bring you back into true joy, then a strategy that worked before is no longer working 
in this life. Master, in fact, talked about the different specific gravities and how they relate to especially spiritual authority, how they relate to the guru. The lowest level, the stuck level, doesn't want to have anything to do with it. The next level, which is the Vaishya, or the merchant, will listen to spiritual authority as long as it pertains to fulfillment of his ego. And how many books are out there? How to manifest this? How to get wealthy? How to use spiritual powers to do this? How to? But it has to appeal to the ego. The next one up is the kshatriya. The kshatriya, the essence of it is that the kshatriya wants to give and help people. But the relationship of it to authority, spiritual authority of the kshatriya is that he'll obey a spirit, he'll obey a guru, but the guru has to convince him about why he should obey. And once the guru appeals to his mind or his doubts and convinces him, then he goes along with it. And the sattvic person, the purely sattvic person, the guru says, do this, yes, sir. Say yes and make it snappy. That's the sattvic person's mantra. And so, see, we all come in, we have these past things that we're trailing along. We had a wonderful YTT that yoga teacher training, believe it or not, Davy and I, when we were younger and less stiff, actually taught, taught the uh, yoga teacher training. And we had a kind of a day in which the students did skits, and, and this one fellow had a really fun sense of humor. So he came in, and <clears throat> he was doing a skit on attachment, and he had a kind of a chain, and dragging behind him were suitcases and treasure chests and so on. And gradually, as he came in farther, he had an assistant that unhooked these things from behind, and he grew, and then he let go of the chain. This is the same student, by the way, who did a visualization for deep relaxation in Savasana, and he said, be completely relaxed. Feel, visualize that you're in a forest glade. It's beautiful. The sun is shining. Beautiful breeze. Just relax. Relax completely. Let go of all tension. Now you're hearing a little padding. And it's the padding of a tiger approaching. <laughs> Just relax. Let it all go. Now the tiger is nibbling at your toes. Let them go, let them go. And he went all the way through. So, wonderful, wonderful sense of humor. So, we come trailing these kinds of life strategies. And be careful. Look at your life strategies and see whether those didn't work in a past life but are no longer so valuable right now. Because if you have authority issues, the authority that you're rebelling against is your soul, nothing else, your own higher self in this life. And so be careful about that. And we have, that's just one of hundreds of different strategies we can come in. But we carry these things with us. So let me 
now just touch on what frees us, because that's what the rest of the week is going to be. What frees us is anything that brings the energy back in from its outward direction and up through the spine. So service frees us, because service allows us to think of other people, not the ego. And it's the ego force, it's the desire to, um, I don't know, bring things into this limited form that pushes the energy outward. So service to others is enormously freeing. Another thing that is enormously freeing is devotion. Because devotion is the energy of the heart that's turned upward toward God. I've been doing a chant lately that I found. I I suggested this in uh, our blog, our Touch of Light blog last week it came out. But I've been doing a chant that has been very, very uplifting and very freeing for me, and I'll share it. There's a beautiful chant of masters uh, from a Bengali song, and it's the English is, Receive me on thy lap, O mother. Cast me not at death's door. Receive me on thy, receive me on thy lap, O mother. Cast me not at delusion's door. And I've been repeating that over and over. But just for myself, and I'm not saying that everyone should do this, and in fact, don't mess too much with the chants because Master's brought them into superconsciousness. But for myself, to help me visualize that, I see death's door and delusion's door as the medulla, as the seat of the ego. And I'm asking Mother not to cast me into ego again. And then I'm chanting a, a verse that says, Receive me now, O Master. Cast me not. Um, Receive me now, O my Master. Leave me not here at death's door. Because I want to get out of the ego. And then I say, Receive me now, my Guru. Lead me through Kutasta's door, being the spiritual eye. So this chant for me, I'm trying to go beyond the words of it into, for me at this stage, the meaning of that. And to bring that energy, downward energy, up and out into complete liberation and freedom, eventually moksha. So devotion, anything that will enhance our devotion, and finally and most importantly, for devotees, this is what Master said over and over again as the most important thing, and that's attunement with the Guru. Attunement with the Guru will straighten out because he will guide you through all the other pitfalls. But if we do these things during this week and really enhance them, then we're going to leave happier, more fulfilled, and it'll be a permanent change for us.
It was charming. There was a little lizard that ran up and was, there he is, by Master Statue, and he was pronouming to Master. <laughs> so our theme for the week is finding happiness, the art of living. And these are two themes that throughout all of Master's teachings wove their way into what he shared with all of us, his students and disciples. Master said that great saints and men and women usually live hundreds of years ahead of their time so that they can exemplify for others universal, eternal principles. And this was certainly true of Master. And it was also true of Swamiji. When you look at everything that he did in his life, the great books that he wrote, the music that he created, the communities that he founded worldwide, again, they're a little bit ahead of their time. They haven't quite found their resonance in, in global consciousness yet, but they will. And, you know, when one looks at all of Swamiji's accomplishments, as we know, Master said, you have a great work to do. But then Rajasi Janakananda, after Master's passing, said, and Master will give you the strength to do it. Well, Swami, one can look at the surface and say, well, this was the great work, all the books and the music and the communities and the lectures and uh, global founding of communities. But really, I think, to me, the more I think about it, the most profound aspect of the great work that Swami did was once he was thrown out of the organization that represented, seemed to seemingly solely represented Master's teacher teachings, represented him, to take it from the outside and to spread Master's teachings in a universal way that was non-sectarian-based, non-organizational-based, that could reach out to the whole world in freedom, without any sense of, do you belong to this, do you belong to that? And this, I think, was... And Master had to give him the strength to do that, because how else would it be possible alone to stand up in this world and do that? And so we see these great souls lived hundreds of years ahead of their time, and we follow in their wake. We follow both vibrationally and energetically and with our dedication in their wake. And when we look at this theme of finding happiness, Master talked about it in two different ways. First, the microcosmic way, that addressing just the individual, how we can be happy, how we can get out of delusion. And Jatish was speaking so much of this. And this is important. He, he came for each one of us to get out of suffering. But then he also had a macrocosmic mission, a mission to the whole world. And sometimes I wonder... Why did Master come to America? And we'll talk about this more later because he said so many things about America and the importance of it in global evolution. But then we might even ask a bigger question. 
Why did Master and our line of gurus come to this planet, for heaven's sake? It's not a very high planet. As Master said, it's a rajasic planet in a rajasic solar system, in a rajasic galaxy, in a rajasic age. And here they, these great ones came. Of course, they're not limited to this planet. You know, Sri Yukteswar now, as he tells us, this was when autobiography was written, who knows where he is now, but he was in an astral planet after his passing, Hiranyaloka. So they're not limited to this planet, but nevertheless, these great ones, Jesus Christ, Babaji Krishna, Lahiri Mahashaya, Swami Sri Yukteswarji, and Master, they've come again and again to this sorry little planet that we live on. And it's kind of astonishing. Why? Well, they say that uh, Master has told us that it is the mission of these great ones to guide the spiritual evolution of this planet. I think it's probably fair to say they're not limited by only doing this. But nevertheless, this is what they do. And they do it on a very direct way. Swamiji said, quoting Master, that Babaji put the thought in Hitler's mind to split his forces on the Eastern Front and the Western Front invading Russia, and that was what broke his army and his military strength. Babaji put that thought in his mind. You know, when Master was returning to uh, from uh, India in 1936, he stopped in Germany. This was before Hitler was totally in control of the country. He tried to have a meeting with him, but he was denied. But nevertheless, one can't help but think that he was putting out energy. So these great ones govern on a macrocosmic level the happiness of this planet, the well-being of this planet. They didn't come, as Swami has said, to get us out of our little mud puddle. They came, I mean, to clean us up in our mud puddle. They came to obliterate the mud puddle. And this is what we need to understand, the scope of this mission that they've come to bring. And its profound effect now, past, present, future, the evolution of consciousness. Now, let's examine these two aspects that we talked about. First, the, in, the striving for individual happiness. What did, how did Master show us the way and what guidelines did he give? In his lectures, he talks, and we'll hear about this this week, we'll have classes on meditation and right attitude and discipleship and Kriya Yoga. And he talks about, he gave a profundity and an abundance of teachings on right diet and fasting and right attitude and uh, getting along with others and on and on and on, how to live a balanced, simple life, not bound by materialism and sense involvement. But then he also talked about happiness is a state of mind. And we need to, by interiorizing our mind, we find that. That's who we are. That's why uh, Jyotish gave that quote, evil is the anything that diminishes our joy or our happiness. And so we need to understand that it's a choice we make 
whether we choose to be happy or not. You know, recently I've been having a very interesting experience. Uh, Two weeks ago, we went to visit a very good friend of ours who has been in prison for 30 years in a prison. Now he's in a place called Pleasant Valley State Prison. And it's... um, it's um, near Coalinga, if you know Southern California. He's been, since he went into prison when he was 22 for a crime he did not commit. He was framed by some shady business partners. He's 52 now. He's been in there all these years. He found the autobiography about 15 years ago. Jatish went to Folsom Maximum Security, where he was at the time, gave him Kriya. And uh, he's... It's hard to describe the radiance of that soul. I told him, well, so we went to visit him two weeks ago, and I told, we had a wonderful time. It was really amazing. There you are surrounded by human misery, and we sat at a little table with his sister and brother-in-law, and we were laughing and sharing inspiring stories. It was like we were on a whole other planet. And I said, can we meditate here? And he said, yes. So we just held hands, and we meditated and blessed him. And it was, and then I, I came away, of course, feeling with very mixed emotions. One felt pain, suffering, what a waste, why is this happening? But at the same time, I, we all talked, there is a reason for this. He was expiating some karma. He meditates every day in his cell for hours. That, and he has initiated it with our permission, his cellmate into Korea. And it's a, but of course one feels the tragedy of it. But he said to us, I know it's hard to understand, but up till this time, I have felt it was there was a karmic retribution for me to be here. I don't feel that anymore. I feel like it's done. And he's coming up for an appeal again. And I, I truly hope and pray with all my heart that he can be freed because he has so much he can do for the world. But then I got home and I read this beautiful prayer in, in Kamala's remarkable book put out by Crystal Clarity, The Flawless Mirror, where she said, it's quoting Master, these were prayer poems unpublished anywhere else, and Master says, I was a prisoner, but I made my own cage, and I made my own bars, and I fettered my hands, and I chained my feet, and then I realized my prison was of my own making, and only I, no one else could, but I could break those chains. And I've been thinking about that so much because it was so poignant with our friend Joseph. But it was, I thought, all the little things that come to me, I'll be feeling blissful, I'll be feeling joyful, I'll be feeling, feeling Master's presence. And then I think, oh, no, you can't go there. What about this? You have to worry about this. This might not work out. And what about that poor person? And I put the chains back on, and I put the bars back up. And I thought, this is a choice, that I don't have to put the chains back up. And I believe Joe is coming to the realization that he can take the bars down. He does, he's expiated that karma. And so I remember 
some years ago, many years ago, frankly, I was having a hard time with some karmic test, and I was doing everything I could to try to break through. And finally, in absolute sense of failure and despair, I went to Swamiji. And I said, Swami, I don't know what else to do. I've I prayed about it. I've done affirmations about it. Everything I could think of to do it just doesn't go away. And Swami patted me on the head, as he often did, and he said, ultimately, breaking through these things is just God's grace. Well, what did he mean by that? Did he mean just give up? No, no, no. What he meant by that, because I've, I've thought about that a lot, I think what he was saying is bad karma keeps us in suffering. And it's through attunement with the guru and meditation and doing everything that we know how to do that that's where the grace comes in. When we do everything we know how to do, the guru starts weakening the power of that bad karma. We can't attack it head on. It doesn't work that way. But we can through indirectly doing everything we can, then the guru starts, and I can feel it in myself in certain issues. It just like that karma, it just weakens and weakens, and it no longer has power over me. And that's the beauty of the spiritual path, and that's what Master brought us, that how to find that freedom through seeking the truth within your being, the joy within your being, that nothing can diminish. Nothing can take that away unless you give it away. And we need to realize that. We give our happiness away because of misunderstanding, because of bad karma, but that can be broken through. Now let's look also at this global mission that Master had and how this fits in to being happy and the art of living. Master, I, in throughout his mission in the West, he talked about the greatness of America, the greatness of India, and the importance of world brotherhood colonies. He said, God has created many different civilizations to show man's different potentials, high potentials. So ancient Egypt, the brilliance of clarity of thought and working with that perfection of being. Uh, Western civilization, the Renaissance, the beauty of expression, artistic expression. When you go to particularly Firenze and see those great works of art, you think, how was this done? How could human beings create the David, create the Pieta, the Mona Lisa? Well, that's in the Louvre in France. But all of these great works of art. And God has created these different civilizations to show man's potential. But right now, Master talked again and again of the importance in our time of America, which represents material efficiency, and India, spiritual efficiency, if you want to use that word, but spiritual depth. Master said it is vitally important for the happiness of this planet for these two cultures to come together now. 
it's not just wouldn't it be nice we'll wear Indian clothes. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is the balancing and imbalanced world, and these great ones are guiding it. They're guiding our planet. And so we need Master talked again and again about the importance. And he spoke so highly of America. And, you know, in this times in which we're living where our wonderful country, I think we're doubting our greatness because of all the the divisiveness and all the darkness that's coming out and the hatred and this and the hatred perpetuated on our own selves, our own children. All of these things, we have to remember Master, who was hundreds of years ahead of his time, at least, he saw the greatness of America. And I want to just read this poem, that, or prayer, that I found that Master said about America. Recently, we were talking with some friends, and this woman, who's a Kriyabanch, who's she said, I've never been to India. Oh, I wouldn't want to go there. It's, you know, it's too whatever. You fill in the blank, whatever you think it is too. And I said, yes, that's true. But India is the only country in the world where you don't have to explain why you love God. And then I found this passage in, in uh, this article of Masters, and it, he was... I was echoing his thoughts. It is easy to remember God in India because there everybody talks of him. Here, if you talk about God in America, anywhere except in church on Sunday, you are regarded as a fanatic. But America is advancing rapidly in spirituality. There is more understanding and desire for God here than in most other parts of the world. And I believe that a great blessing is going to come upon you. That's important to remember. Let's not get caught up in the momentary darkness or delusion that seems to be floating. A master said a great blessing is coming on this country, and joining India and America will lead the world. It's vitally important to lead the world to happiness. Now, master also, in a talk he gave in 19... Uh, 50. Well, this was at the um, dedication of the beautiful Lake Shrine. And he talked about the scientific art of living. And he talked about world unity. And he, out, he offered different aspects of it. He talked about a universal language. And he said it has to be English, one language. He talked about a unity of all religions, not based on outward observations or observances or creeds, but based on meditation and introspection and communion with God. He talked, interestingly enough, about an, an international police force. He said it is needed because not all countries are enlightened. That would have the support of everyone. And then he talked about world brotherhood colonies. And, you know, as Swamiji has told us, this was a repeated theme in the end of his life, the Beverly Hills Garden Party, 1949, where he talked about, you go north, south, east, and west. And, by the way, as a little aside, 
Jatish and I had the wonderful opportunity for a screening of the movie that many of you were in called The Answer, which is a story of Master's training of Swamiji. It's a remarkable film. It's not completed yet. It still needs to be uh, edited, cut down somewhat. But we will present this to all of you next May at the dedication of Swami's Moksha Mandir. And it's all I can say is it's beyond anything I thought could be possible to recreate Swami's time with Master. But this movement of world brotherhood colonies, and Master said, America is the perfect place to start world brotherhood colonies, which will lead, again, he linked the art of living, finding happiness with living in communities. Why? Because they exemplify these eternal truths and principles that he talked about in all different ways, living a God-centered life, not an egoic-centered life, living a life of cooperation, not competition, living a life of self-control and moderation, not self-indulgence, living a life of simplicity, not material complexity, and on and on we can go, self-sufficiency rather than dependency, and sharing and giving and thinking of the whole world as our family. So these communities that Master envisioned, it wasn't just a social experiment. It was part of the global upliftment that these great masters came to this planet for. It was part of their mission to create areas, create communities that that condensed higher consciousness, which leads to happiness. And he said these communities exemplify the first principle of life, which is happiness. And so for all of us who are part of this great movement of Ananda, it's just beginning. The world may be going through upheaval and darkness. Who knows? Master predicted it. But it is our job to follow in their wake. Not just It's important that each one of us break through the bonds of bad karma and delusion, and find the joy of our own being. But it is equally important that we think about the happiness of the planet and help to spread master's teachings, communities that go hand in hand. This is why we came. And for those of us who are sincere disciples of master, who have a life dedication to his mission, we will not find happiness if we just seek it for ourselves. A little bit, but not as much as can be. But if we understand the bigger picture of where happiness fits in, not only for ourselves, but for the world at large, then we begin to bring that higher consciousness. We become extensions of these great masters. Not that we are anything special in and of ourselves, but the more we can get ourselves out of the way and say, we see why you came, Master, and our great line of gurus. Let us follow in your footsteps. Let us share this joy and this way of life and this happiness of soul with all who will receive it. God bless you. So we just invite you all to join us in singing Life is a Dream. Thank you.
Oh. Uh-huh. 